Welcome to this forthright radio for June 16th, 2021. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is Andy Norman, Ph.D., who directs the Humanism Initiative at Carnegie Mellon University, and he is the founder of CIRSI, the Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative. His book, Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think, was just published by HarperCollins. It lays out the conceptual foundations of cognitive immunology, the emerging science of mental immune health. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Andy Norman. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Joy. It's nice to be here with you all. Andy, you begin your book, Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think, with the personal experience of picking up your then four-year-old son from daycare at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Remind our listeners what happened there years later and why you started your book this way. Yeah, so in, I think it was October, perhaps early November 2018, that a deranged individual named Robert Bowers entered the Tree of Life Synagogue, which is just a few blocks from where I sit, and murdered 11 people he'd never met because they were Jewish and because his mind had become infected with morally disorienting ideas. Because my children attended daycare in the very building where he committed this atrocity, And I had kind of a heartwarming story about picking up my son there one day. I started the book by juxtaposing sort of the heartwarming personal anecdote and the heart-wrenching tragedy in a way to highlight the fact that we have a big problem in our society today with divisive ideologies and other forms of irresponsible thinking that seem to be tearing our nation apart. And I use that to pose the question, what's going on and how do we solve this problem? And then I bring the tools of philosophy and psychology to bear on the problem to argue that there is a very promising approach to solving the problem we have with partisan division and other forms of irresponsible thinking. Well, as we continue to experience a global pandemic of the SARS-CoV-2 microbe, the analogy of a virus does seem apt for what you write about. Would you expand on that? Sure. In the book, I argue that bad ideas are actually mind parasites. Uh, Not many people put it to themselves in that way. But if you go down the list of properties that parasites have, bad ideas have them all. So parasites require a host. They infect those hosts. They can create copies of themselves and jump and spread to other hosts, and they invariably harm their hosts, which is why we classify them as parasites rather than symbionts or helpful microbes. And although good ideas qualify as mind symbionts or sort of helpful co-travelers, bad ideas actually qualify as mind parasites. And it's time we started viewing it that way in part to reduce our own susceptibility to infectious ideas, but also because the sciences are now discovering that this analogy, that this concept of mind-to-parasite is robust, 
and that the mind, in fact, has an immune system just as the body does and that we can learn how mental immune systems work and how we can make them work better so that outbreaks of unreason don't tear our world apart. You identify what you call cognitive immunology's toolbox, and there are what you call immune disruptors versus Mm -hmm. immune boosters, inoculates, and mind vaccines. Why don't you explain what you mean about immune disruptors? Minds perform operations to detect and remove bad ideas. And the sum total of those operations, which include critical thinking, kind of skeptical attitudes, open-minded idea testing, these are the things that healthy minds do to spot and remove bad ideas. I call them the mind's immune system. And it turns out certain ideas can find their way aboard and disrupt the proper functioning of mental immune systems. So the idea that I already have everything figured out already is a classic mental immune disruptor because it basically drains you of any desire to continue inquiring and learning. And it also results in a kind of arrogance that is antithetical to healthy mental immune function. So humility turns out to be a a mental immune booster and arrogance turns out to be a mental immune disruptor. And then the book goes on to identify half a dozen to a dozen other ideas that compromise mental immune function in various ways. Maybe I'll give one example here. The idea that everyone is entitled to their opinions originated as a way to prevent governments from trying to control our thoughts. And I think we can all agree that thought police are not a good idea. But it doesn't follow from that, of course, that we're morally entitled to believe anything we darn please. There are many beliefs that it is simply wrong to accept or allow yourself to believe. For example, for me to believe that my race is superior to other races or that other people of a certain kind are vermin, these are not morally acceptable beliefs. And we need to understand that the realm of ethics extends into our minds and that if we hope to be good people, we have to learn how to believe responsibly and then hold ourselves to high standards of accountable belief. Okay, I'm going to digress here because there's an issue that I think we need to get out into the open. You are a public philosopher, Andy Norman, and I am sorry to tell you that many people are bemused by what philosophers do and whether what they do is useful to the average person. In fact, of all the ivory tower options, philosophy seems, for lack of a better word, in the minds of some, the least pertinent to life's struggles. So take this opportunity to respond to that opinion, because I think unless we do, a lot of what you have to say is not going to have the impact that I think it should. Yeah, thank you for asking that. The word philosophy comes from the Greek, and it means lover of wisdom. And to really pursue wisdom with passion requires a very unusual frame of mind. So it's not for everyone. And philosophers like to ask deep questions, and their answers to these deep, troubling questions can't always pick them up and wield them like hammers. A lot of times, philosophers will examine questions about what's right or what's just, what's true or what's false, what's knowledge or mere opinion, and they end up discovering Not what the answer is, but they end up discovering that a lot of the prevailing answers don't add up. So what philosophy often delivers to us is a really interesting negative results 
that teach us to be more humble in our application of prevailing opinions and prevailing standards. And in a time like ours, when dogmatic certainty and ill-founded belief spread like epidemics across the internet. In fact, the World Health Organization has just declared that infodemics, the spread of misinformation and disinformation, is a serious threat to public health. Well, it turns out that the things philosophers have been investigating and learning about for thousands of years can help us halt and minimize the spread of dangerous ideas. But we specialists can't do this alone. We need to get the ideas out there where other people can help us combat the scourge of dangerous and otherwise harmful beliefs. So I argue in the book that philosophy is profoundly practical when viewed in the right way. It's just that we've fallen out of the habit of thinking long term. And so we look for quick fix solutions where, in fact, we need to pursue deep alterations of our sensibilities and habits of mind. But when we make the needed adjustments to our ways of thinking, change can come about very rapidly. In the Enlightenment, about a hundred year period from 1750 to 1850, uh, 1700 to 1800 by some accounts, in that century, the spread of ideas resulted in a massive decline in violence and a huge increase in human well-being. And the root cause of that, I argue in the book, was the spread of philosophical innovations, including the idea that human beings have rights. So I think we can have a similarly dramatic impact on today's world by thinking deeply about the question, what makes a good idea good and a bad idea bad, spreading the results of that inquiry and thereby strengthening our mind's immune systems so that future generations don't have to suffer from the outbreaks of divisive and really crazy conspiracy thinking that we're seeing today. We are speaking with Andy Norman. His latest book is Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. Andy, you designate at least three eras of our approach to investigating reality. You call the first one Antiquities Epistemology Expedition, then modernity's science safari and the 20th century critical thinking crusade. Could you briefly expand on this progression as you see it? Philosophers have been trying to come up with a way to prevent folly from harming human prospects for a long, long time. We've come up with a few central ideas that have gained traction within the larger populace and reshaped our civilizations. So in antiquity, the Greek philosophers came up with the idea, hey, why don't we test ideas for reasonableness and toss out the ones that prove unreasonable? And hey, we can all get wiser together and build up a more beautiful, just society. That turned out to be a really terrific idea, but it's hard to pin down the precise meaning of reasonable. And so that initiative which originated in antiquity kind of never bore the wisdom promoting fruits that philosophers had hoped. Then in the Middle Ages, many philosophers and thinkers hitched their wagon to the idea that faith is the answer, that if we believe things on faith, we can bring about wisdom and prosperity for all. That resulted in the Dark Ages, which turned out to be a step in the wrong direction because 
the idea that faith-based believing is a good idea promoted dogmatism and superstition and led to about a thousand years of disease and suffering. And then we came out of the Dark Ages in a time historians call modernity, and the key idea of modernity, speaking philosophically here, is that science can teach us how the world really works. And if we apply the results of our scientific investigations, we can make the world a better place for us all. That turns out to be another wonderful idea that helps to promote wisdom. But I argue in the book, it doesn't go far enough because we have this idea that science can only answer questions about what is and cannot answer questions about what ought to be. Turns out we have a very limited concept of what science can do for us, and that prevents the central idea of modernity from fully resolving our problem with dangerous ideologies. And then the final step in the story I tell uh, here is, I call it the 20th century's critical thinking crusade. And the idea here is that we can all learn to think critically test ideas and toss out the bad ones. Again, a wonderful idea, and it has helped make humanity wiser and more enlightened. But it turns out we don't have a clear idea of what it means to think critically, and we don't know how to impart it very well to ourselves and our children. And so once again, and in our age in particular, we see ideas that should not withstand critical questioning flourishing in ways that damage all of our prospects. So the, the moral of the story is that we philosophers have attempted to initiate several important initiatives to combat the spread of unreason. Each of them has fallen far short of expectations, and we need a new approach, which I then go on to develop using these concepts of cognitive immunology. Let's get back then to the idea of the immune disruptive aspects that you identify. Let's begin with the one, beliefs are private, they're nobody else's concern. Why is that an immune disruptive idea? Most of us recognize that beliefs are private in at least one important sense. Each of us has direct access to our own beliefs and only indirect access to other people's beliefs. So in that sense, beliefs really are private. But when you take this idea into your mind and you start to interpret the word private in another way, namely, my beliefs are my business and nobody else's business, when you start to interpret those same words in this second and quite distinct way, it ends up becoming an excuse for irresponsible believing. So the idea can kind of hitch a ride in your mind on one interpretation and then become something that excuses irresponsible cognition on the other reading. And in this way, it disrupts healthy mental immune function. It excuses irresponsible conviction and gets us off the hook for updating and refining our beliefs. Can you give us an example of that? Sure. So I, I once had a student who we were discussing some influential political ideologies, and I raised some tough critical questions about the stance a student was defending. He was defending a kind of libertarianism, and I raised some tough questions about it, and he basically said, my beliefs are my business. He says, question my words if you want, but my beliefs are my business. So kind of go away <laughs> with your questions. I think this dismiss way of dismissing uncomfortable questions is a rampant phenomenon. We've actually developed a culture where we shy away 
from the hard philosophical questions because they make us uneasy. And when we do that, we buy a short-term kind of comfort or at least relief from conversational discomfort, but we end up paying a price in the kind of growth. We end up not growing in important ways. And I end up describing that our, our contemporary culture is is immune compromised in a very important sense because we haven't had these difficult conversations and updated our political and moral and economic convictions on the basis of the right kind of critical questioning. Would you say that this is at least related to what some are calling siloing, that because of the way information is being distributed these days via mm -hmm. the Internet primarily, mm -hmm. uh, or even cable TV, and this gets to the confirmation bias aspects of things, people tend to silo themselves in mm -hmm. information sources that reinforce their quote-unquote private beliefs. Yes, that's got to be an important part of the story here. Those who are studying the way in which the Internet and social media and filter bubbles and the way we sort of find our way into information silos or echo chambers, as some call it, I'm, I'm sure that's a very important part of the phenomenon. And when we do that, we gravitate towards online forums that reinforce our political and moral and religious convictions and that tend to filter out views and questions that might challenge us and get us to think more broadly or in a more fair-minded way. And so, yes, I'm quite confident that, that something about the structure of the Internet, the way it's designed today, is also disrupting mental immune systems. And that's got to be a huge part of the story. Well, let's move on to another disruptor, and that is the right to believe what we like and you distinguish between legal and moral rights. Would you expand on that, please, Andy Norman? The idea that everyone is entitled to their opinion is almost an article of faith on the left and the right among secular and religious people. And I argue that it's actually created a culture of cognitive entitlement. Everybody feels as though they have a, a right to believe and think the way they, they, they like. And we emphasize those rights to the exclusion of our responsibilities. And so we live in a world right now where the idea, I have a right to my opinion, isn't appropriately counterbalanced by a realization that every right comes with responsibilities and every right has boundary conditions, right? You can't yell fire in a crowded theater because our right to be safe in a theater places reasonable boundaries on other people's right to speech. And in exactly the same way, facts and evidence place reasonable boundaries on our right to certain opinions. But we don't fully recognize that fact or process it in a way that compels us to dedicate ourselves to responsible believing. So in the book, I argue that we need to dispense with this idea or at least recognize its partial truth and move beyond it so that we can develop a healthier, more responsible cultural ethos. You bring up a concept earlier in the book called willful unreasonableness. Tell us why you chose to emphasize that and what its ramifications are. Yeah, you've hit on a, one of the main ideas, I think, of the book. So I'll start with a story. In 2014, there was a debate between Bill Nye, the science guy, and a creationist named Ken Ham. And the moderator in the debate asked both men, what would change your mind? 
they were debating whether the Genesis account of the world's origins is scientifically respectable. Bill Nye, the science guy, basically said, evidence will change my mind. Present me good evidence. And he gave several examples. I will gladly learn from the appropriate evidence. And then Ken Him had a chance to answer. And he said, nothing is going to convince me that the word of God is not true. He was basically saying that my commitment to these beliefs is so powerful that I refuse to change my mind, even if presented with good evidence for why they should change. He was expressing a kind of devotion, but a kind of devotion based in willful believing. And I argue that when we indulge in wishful or willful believing in that way, we actually damage the mechanism that keeps our minds hinged. So the idea that our beliefs should change in response to evidence is kind of like the hinge on which all reasoning turns. And when you damage that conviction, reasons can't educate and enlighten us the way they're supposed to. So some forms of dogmatic religious faith actively damage a capacity to learn and think and reason and adjudicate our disputes amicably. So I think we need to do away with the idea that dogmatic faith is a virtue and learn. Well, so John Maynard Keynes, the Nobel Prize winning economist, said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? And with that, he basically expressed what I believe is one of the most important moral commitments we can possibly make which is to always yield to better reasons, even if it's not comfortable, even if you don't like where they're pushing you. If you recognize a reason as compelling, let it do its work to change your mind and you will become a better and better adjusted person. This really resonates with me in our current political situation in the United States of America, where it seems that for a certain segment of the population, no amount of evidence can change political stances. And not only is it polarizing between the major political parties, but it's actually seeming to cause a breach among what is a minority of the Republican Party and the majority over that very thing about evidence do you have anything to contribute uh, as to where to go from that? Yeah, it's a hard problem, but I develop several solutions in the book. So part of the problem is that let's take, take QAnon followers, for example. So QAnon is a conspiracy theory that holds that a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles is in control of the U.S. government and during the Trump presidency seeking to overthrow Donald Trump. These ideas are so absurd as to barely deserve discussion, but it's actually quite easy to check these, investigate the origins of this idea and how it has actually mutated and spread across the Internet. It turns out it's basically a very seductive mind parasite that gives people the sense that they're in on some great secret and that they're understanding the deep workings of the world, which in fact, is traceable back to a conspiracy. This is the way conspiracy theories work. They thrive in the absence of evidence, but they also create mental blocks against real evidence. They, they become self 
insulating belief systems, belief systems that are impervious to, to correction. And we're seeing similar phenomenons, hardened views on the political left and on the political right. And it's not serving us well. I, and I think we can appeal to everyone who wants their minds to function well and say, hey, there's a new science of mental immunity and we can learn how to think better and how to think better together and in this way free us all from ideas that otherwise basically hijack our minds and frustrate our own best interests. That brings up the whole willingness part of it and the parallels with our current situation in the physical world of trying to overcome a virus epidemic. We have vaccines. They seem very efficacious. And yet some individuals absolutely refuse to afford themselves of the potential that the vaccine has to save lives. Mm -hmm. So that's life and death in the physical world. And then there are others who absolutely refuse whatever you will have to offer, Andy Norman, in terms of immunological relief from mind parasites. (laughs) You're quite right. (laughs) You're quite right. So you, you might argue that my effort is doomed to fail because the people who need to hear my my message most are the ones most likely to refuse to hear it. There will certainly be people who are so unwilling to rethink things that they can't hear or process what I argue in the book. But rather than give up, I choose to try to strengthen the mental immune systems of the willing first and foremost. So I think the way to approach this problem is to spread the concepts and the tools of cognitive immunology first and foremost among the willing, those willing to educate themselves on this new science and apply its findings to so that they can think better. And then they can begin to influence the people in their orbit just by taking a different approach to the everyday conversations they have. And in this way, holding other people to higher standards of accountable talk. And this is the way in which norms change. You you get a small number of people who are passionately committed to bringing about needed change. That small number of people begins to spread the ideas to those around them. And over time, the norm takes hold and becomes one that makes it harder and harder to sustain outlandish conspiracy theories or divisive political ideologies or dogmatic faith-based beliefs. We have to be patient. We have to think long-term. We have to inoculate our own minds first and foremost, and then in a non-judgmental way, help those around us. And of course, the only way you're going to reach your cranky uncle who thinks jackbooted thugs are ready to break down his doors and steal his guns, the only way you're going to help him is to actually listen to him and hear, let him hear himself think out loud. I mean, the research seems to indicate that you don't disabuse people of deeply dysfunctional ideas by browbeating them. The way you do it is to be a good listener, ask clarifying questions, and hope that they'll eventually come to realize that the very ideas they espouse don't make sense. There's a, In other words, there's a gentle form of Socratic questioning that can help even the hardest case cases 
recover or find their way out of their rabbit holes. But that requires an especial kind of patience and an especially gentle spirit. Yes. Well, back to the immune disruptive ideas. This one's a big one. We have no standing to criticize other people's value judgments. Who Mm -hmm. is to say? Yes. So this is, I think, a really powerful one. Many of us have come to believe that values are ultimately subjective and that no one of us has standing to question anybody else's values. This pair of ideas functions together to squash value discourse, value inquiry before it can even get started. Because if you're constantly worried that any attempt to promote your values is essentially amounts to imposing those values on others, you will lose the courage of your convictions. You will become the kind of person who cannot be an effective advocate for those values. And just as we have a problem with too much conviction on the part of the dogmatic, we have a problem with too little conviction on the part of those committed to open-mindedness. So the answer to the question, who's to say, is we are to say. Nobody else is going to decide for us which ideas are worth hanging on to and which ideas have to be rejected. We have to do the hard work of assessing those ideas and tossing out the bad ones. We can do it together. We can do it in a collaborative spirit. We don't have to unilaterally decide which ideas are the bad ones and then tell other people which ideas they must reject. We can actually use gentle collaborative dialogue to show people they have to part with certain ideas. And that's the way philosophers have been doing it for a long time. And I can't imagine a time, there's certainly no time in my life, where the world needs to wake up and actually hear and learn from what philosophers have been trying to say for many, many, many generations. Andy Norman, this one kind of goes right into that one, which is that basic value commitments are not subject to rational assessment. What do you want to add about that? Yeah, so there's a fascinating philosophical conundrum surrounding the notion of basic beliefs. Here's the idea. All arguments have to start somewhere. So in order to make any headway with argumentation, you have to take certain premises for granted and then start deriving conclusions from them. Philosophers noticed this long ago and asked themselves, well, by what right do we take those initial premises for granted? And philosophers have struggled to articulate a cogent reply because it looks as though any premise you take for granted or treat as basic It looks as though we all have to exempt certain ideas from critical questioning just so that questioning doesn't go on forever and pull the rug out from under our feet. This is a technical problem in philosophy that convinces many people that we basically have to take our value assumptions as gospel, essentially, and argue forwards from them rather than ever questioning them and possibly having to rethink them. This is a hugely dysfunctional idea, and we need to recognize that just because arguments need to start somewhere doesn't mean you're entitled to start wherever you darn please and begin deriving conclusions. If somebody raises good faith questions about even your core or most basic value convictions, have the courage to examine those convictions and find out if they're genuinely worth hanging on to. 
The other side of that, what you just said, is the sixth one of the immune disruptive ideas, which is to question another person's core commitment is fundamentally intolerant, mean-spirited, mm. offensive, unkind. Yeah, I'm going to connect this to my earlier point that the idea that we're all we all have a right to believe what we like. A right is something you're not supposed to do anything to disturb or disrupt. So if we have a right to our beliefs, then it's transgressed by definition, almost transgressive of a right to question our core beliefs, which means that the whole task of critically examining ideas and tossing out the bad ones becomes viewed as transgressive. And we live at a time right now where so many people are worried about causing other people conversational discomfort or inadvertently transgressing against their cognitive rights, that we just stop having the kind of deep conversations that can make us wiser. In fact, a lot of young people right now are reporting that they don't even want to have the hard conversations in college because they're worried that they'll get canceled or they'll say something incautious and other people will jump to conclusions about what they believe. So young people today are watching other people get canceled online because they say unenlightened things and they do, won't even run the risk of that. So they stop engaging in critical dialogue and conversation. And that's got to be dysfunctional. It's not helping our civilization get wiser or advance if we view critical questioning as transgressive. Let's get to the immunological, I have a hard time with that word, <laughs> immunological aspects of what you have discovered and are writing about in your book, Mental Immunity. One of the core concepts is what you call reasons fulcrum. Could you please tell us about that? Yeah, so reasons are like levers. We use reasons to kind of adjust our own and each other's beliefs and ideas and attitudes. So if you and I are in a car and we're headed to a destination and I, I prefer route A and you happen to know that route A is closed because it's under construction, you can point that out, in essence, provide a reason and thereby change my mind so that I steer the path down route B and help us get to our shared destination. This is a perfectly ordinary example of how reasoning can work to change minds. But the only way a reason can sway a mind that doesn't want to change is if we feel an obligation to change our mind in the face of better reasons. So reasons fulcrum is the idea that we all have an obligation to yield to better reasons. If I produce the better reason, Joy, you agree to change your mind. If you produce the better reason, I agree to change mine. Dialogue can't function properly if we don't have that as a shared ground rule, so to speak. And I argue that this particular idea is a ground rule not just of resolution-oriented dialogue. It's a ground rule of all inquiry, all science, all good conversation, all problem-solving. It's actually the kind of the linchpin of civilization in some ways. I developed that argument in chapter eight. 
but it's also the linchpin of the mind's immune system. Your mind can't do the job of spotting and removing bad ideas if it doesn't agree to let go of the ones that prove to be problematic. So when we compromise that idea or damage it because of our, say, faith-based convictions, then we end up with compromised mental immune systems and we end up more susceptible to other bad ideas. Now, there's a really interesting empirical study that demonstrates this. Just in 2020, a team led by Gordon Pennycook out of Canada found that when you let go of the idea that our beliefs must change in response to evidence, you become more susceptible to dogmatic political ideologies, more susceptible to conspiracy thinking, more susceptible to science denial, more susceptible to many kinds of mind parasite. And that lends support, I think, to my contention in the book that reasons fulcrum, this norm that says we all must yield to better reasons, that that idea is actually pivotal to our collective well-being. You also engage in the concept parallel of hyperactive immune systems, right. autoimmune. How would that play out in this whole discussion? Yeah, so just as a body's immune system can be underactive and fail to spot and remove pathogens, well, just as it could be underactive, it can also be overactive and thereby attack the body's own tissues. Scientists call that autoimmunity. And it turns out there is such a thing as an autoimmune disorder of the mind. Your mind can actually generate antibodies that attack good ideas rather than do what they're supposed to do, which is to, to generate antibodies that attack bad ideas. Doubts are the mind's antibodies. And a well-functioning mind generates doubts when genuinely problematic ideas are brought to its attention. So a, a story can illustrate this point. Back in the beginning of the COVID pandemic, Donald Trump was holding a press conference and he mused out loud that it might be a good idea to inject disinfectant into people so that they couldn't become infected with COVID. And he turned to his right and looked at Deborah Burks, who was the head of his coronavirus task force, I believe, and he was seeking her validation, I think, and she looked mortified. You and your listeners have probably heard this story. And think about what happened in your mind when this idea, when this suggestion came to your attention. You probably rejected it immediately because you knew that injecting disinfectant into the body was not a good idea. Now, that's an example of the mind's immune system doing what it's supposed to do, which is to spot a bad idea and say, uh-uh. You're, nope, I ain't, ain't going to act on that. Now, it, one of the people who heard that press conference was a woman who called up her local public health official and asked her whether it would be better to inject bleach into the veins of her young child or whether it would be better to have her young child drink bleach. This woman's mental immune system was either seriously underdeveloped or had been somehow disordered by her devotion to Donald Trump. And think about the way in which conspiracy theorists question almost all of the reliable sources of information. Think, think about the way in which a flat earth theorist manages to question even the reliable photographic evidence of the earth's spherical shape, right? This isn't an underactive 
mental immune system. This is a hyperactive mental immune system. Or more accurately, it's a combination of being unbelievably gullible about the claims of flat earth and unbelievably hyper-skeptical about mainstream sources of reliable scientific information. So the standard view, we should all think more critically, is actually bad advice because you can be too critical for your own good. You can become hyper-skeptical. And the science deniers of today, many of them aren't dumb. Their mental immune systems, though, have gone haywire to the point where they're questioning reliable information and not questioning unreliable information. And so true mental immune health requires a carefully calibrated mind, and there are very specific practical things we can do to calibrate our minds properly so that we can do a better job of spotting and removing bad ideas. Well, in the time we have remaining, let's focus on some of those suggestions that you have to propagate enlightenment, as you put it. What would you like our listeners to know? Yeah, so here's a handful of things you can do to strengthen your own mind's immune system and to help the people around you strengthen theirs. Understand that doubts and questions are the mind's antibodies. Learn to listen to them. A lot of times when you encounter new information, there'll be a little voice in the back of your head that says something about this doesn't seem quite right. If you tune in to that voice and allow it to express itself clearly and then help it frame its discomfort in the form of a question, a lot of times you'll become more sensitive to the bad-making features of information and ideas. You'll start to spot the downsides or the defects of ideas in ways that you had failed to before. So don't suppress your doubts. Pay really close attention to doubts and not just your own. Pay attention to the doubts and questions and qualms of others as well, because a lot of times they will alert you to the problematic features of bad ideas that you yourself can't see. Second thing you can do is recognize that the challenges from people on the other side of the political divide aren't threats. They're opportunities to learn. When we view challenges to our core beliefs as threats, our mental immune systems kind of go into fight or flight mode and begin to crank out antibodies to reject the offending information. But that's not a recipe for thinking well. That's a recipe for thinking defensively, which is a different thing. So treat challenges as opportunities, not threats. Third, realize that you are not your beliefs. Your beliefs take up residence in your mind, perhaps for a while, and maybe they'll serve you fairly well in certain respects. But if you become too attached to your beliefs, you'll start to feel threatened by basic philosophical questions, and you will cease to reason in a clear and fair-minded way. You'll start to reason defensively rather than reasoning to find out. So never treat reasons as weapons or as shields. They're not for attacking and defending. Reasons are tools for guiding people's attention to relevant considerations, and they should always be used to help us understand and find out, and they should never be used to try to defeat an opponent. I'll, uh, and, and finally, I'll say that it's, I think it's really important that we all upgrade our understanding of reasonable belief. This is an argument I develop in some detail in the later chapters of the book. Here's the idea. 
We tend to imagine that supporting reasons are what make reasonable beliefs reasonable. In other words, we think the goodness of good ideas derives from the kind of support, either in the form of arguments or evidence, that lie behind them. The problem with this idea is that it primes us to look for justifying reasons and overlook contrary reasons. It primes us to look for reasons for and to overlook reasons against. This exacerbates something psychologists call confirmation bias, and it can make us more close-minded and cognitively inflexible than we should ideally be. What we should be doing is replacing that picture of reasonable belief with one that recognizes that a belief needs to withstand questioning. It must withstand the rigors of all of the questions that it makes sense to ask. That's the true test of a reasonable or wise belief. And we should try as much as possible to rely only on beliefs that can withstand such questioning. When you make that upgrade in your understanding of reasonable belief or responsible belief, I argue in the book we become wiser and more compassionate versions of ourselves. So these are part of what you call your 12-step approach to it. But I also want you to include this one, let go of the idea that value judgments can't be objective. Mm. It seems to me it's crucial. Thank you for the opportunity to mention that one as well. Yeah, I argue that the idea that values are invariably subjective is another one of these mental immune disruptors. And the way to see yourself free of this idea is to recognize the following. Here's my shining example, but there are many others. Kindness is objectively more conducive to our joint well-being than cruelty is. There's a reason we favor kindness over cruelty. There's a reason we admire people who are kind and dislike people who are unkind or cruel. And that's because we all know deep down that kindness really does work to promote shared flourishing and reciprocal cruelty really doesn't. So don't buy into the trendy idea that values are merely subjective as if they were arbitrary. Our preference for kindness is a non-arbitrary preference. It's a non-arbitrary value. There are objectively valid reasons for preferring kindness over cruelty, and there are equally objective reasons for preferring justice over injustice and honesty over dishonesty. And almost all of the most essential values function to promote human and planetary flourishing. And when we need to view them that way so that our conversations about right and wrong don't get derailed before they even get going. Andy Norman, there's so much more in your book that we didn't even begin to cover. Is there one particular thing that we haven't gotten to that you want to share with our listeners now? You've done a marvelously good job of steering us past a lot of them, Joyce. So uh, I'll thank you for that right off the bat. I guess I'll, I'd just like to leave your listeners with the following thought. You probably fancy yourself a critical thinker, and a critical thinker is a wonderful thing to be. But the concept of critical thinking and the way it's been taught in universities for generations is simply not doing enough to inoculate our minds against the worst forms of cognitive contagion. To solve this problem, we actually need to take our critical thinking game to a whole nother level. And the way to do that is to understand the science of mental immunity and to understand how mental immune systems work and how we can make them work better. 
So I hope you'll check out my book. I think you'll find that there's a ton in there that can help you grow and help the people around you. And I'd love to hear what you think. Well, Andy Norman, thank you so much for your work and for joining us today on Forthright Radio. Your book, Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think is really helpful, especially in the various epidemics we're suffering today. <laughs> yes, yes. Joy, uh, thank you so much. Uh, you, that was a marvelously conducted interview, and I'm, uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you. You just heard an interview with Andy Norman, whose book, Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think, was just published by HarperCollins. And now, for an update on recent rulings concerning fossil fuel pipelines. Jane Klebb, founder of Bold Nebraska, issued the following press release on June 9, 2021, headlined, Nebraska landowners, tribal nations rejoice as TC Energy says Keystone XL pipeline is terminated. Landowners still face ongoing eminent domain litigation with easements not relinquished by TC Energy. Pipeline fighters, water protectors vow to continue until all equipment removed and land returned. Bold Nebraska tribal nations and water protectors around the world rejoiced at the long-anticipated news on June 9th that TC Energy, formerly TransCanada, has terminated the Keystone XL pipeline project. Jane Klebb, Bold founder, said, quote, Pipeline fighters never gave up, even after President Biden stood with us, and we knew locally the fight was not over until TransCanada waved the white flag. Now, the Nebraska Public Service Commission must prepare an order revoking the state permit they granted TransCanada. Until the commissioners act, farmers and ranchers will continue to face TransCanada's attorneys in court, protecting their property from an eminent domain land grab by a former corporation, end quote. Punka Tribe of Nebraska Chairman Larry Wright Jr. said, quote, On behalf of our Punka Nation, we welcome this long overdue news and thank all who worked so tirelessly to educate and fight to prevent this from coming to fruition. It's a great day for Mother Earth, end of the quote. Art Tanderup, landowner and farmer of the now-canceled Keystone XL pipeline route and also along the historic Ponca Trail of Tears added, quote, After a decade, it's a good day that TransCanada has realized there is no future in tar sands and the Keystone XL pipeline, but it's imperative that all permits granted in Nebraska be revoked, especially the Nebraska Public Service Commission permit. The further taking of easements by TransCanada must stop, and current easements must be returned to the landowners. This action provides proof that the stewards of the earth and the water, the farmers, ranchers, and tribes know how to respect what the Creator has given us, end quote. John Queeley of Common Dreams reported, quote, After more than 10 years of organizing, we have finally defeated an oil giant. Keystone XL is dead, 
end of the quote, declared the Indigenous Environmental Network in reaction. We are dancing in our hearts because of this victory. From Indigenous lands in northern Alberta to along the Gulf of Mexico, we stood hand in hand to protect the next seven generations of life, the water, and our communities from this dirty tar sands pipeline. And that struggle is vindicated. The win over TC Energy and its supporters was not the end, but merely the beginning of further victories. There are still frontline indigenous water protectors like Oscar High Elk who face charges for standing against the Keystone XL pipeline. End of the quote. Construction on the 1,200-mile pipeline began last year when former President Donald Trump revived the long-delayed project after it had stalled under the Obama administration. It would have moved up to 830,000 barrels, that's 35 million gallons, of crude daily through Montana and connecting in Nebraska to other pipelines that feed oil refineries on the U.S. Gulf Coast. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had objected to the move, raising tensions between the U.S. and Canada. The Alberta government had invested more than $1 billion in the project last year, kick-starting construction that had stalled amid determined opposition to the line from environmentalists and Native American tribes along its route. Yellowstone Public Radio's Jess Sheldahl reported on June 11, 2021, that Montana's Attorney General Austin Knudsen, lead plaintiff in a suit of 21 state attorneys general against President Biden's action to reverse former President Trump's approval of the cross-border permit for the project. Montana's Austin Knudsen was one of 21 attorneys general to sue President Joe Biden in March, and he says some parts of the lawsuit may not be over. I want a solid ruling from a federal court or a federal appeals court, whatever the case may be, that the president does or does not have this constitutional power to reach back and and issue this kind of latitude over international and interstate commerce. Environmental protesters and Native American tribes have joined together to try to block construction efforts that would expand and repair a controversial pipeline called Line 3, which would carry hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil through tribal lands and fragile watersheds in northern Minnesota. The protesters said they were there as water and land protectors fighting Enbridge, another Canadian-owned company's $9 billion upgrade of the pipeline. The action sparked a confrontation with law enforcement officers and raised the prospects of a high-profile fight to highlight the use of fossil fuels at a time of growing climate crisis. Police made mass arrests of people who had chained themselves to construction equipment and barricaded a road to a construction site north of Park Rapids with an old fishing boat and other obstacles. Police also used a sonic device known as a long-range acoustic device, or LRAD, on the protesters. Representatives of the National Lawyers Guild, who were present at the protest, said more than 100 people had been arrested. U.S. Customs and Border Protection sent a helicopter that hovered 20 to 25 feet over a group of protesters occupying a pump station, kicking up noxious clouds of dust and debris. 
On Monday, June 14, 2021, a three-judge panel of the Minnesota Court of Appeals ruled two to one that the state's Independent Public Utilities Commission correctly granted Enbridge the Certificate of Need and Route Permit that the Canadian-based company required to begin construction on the 337-mile Minnesota segment of a larger project to replace a 1960s-era crude oil pipeline that has deteriorated and can run at only half capacity. The Minnesota Department of Commerce along with the Red Lake Band of Chippewa, the White Earth Band of Ojibwe, and several other indigenous and environmental groups had asked the appeals court to reject the approvals. They argued that Enbridge's oil demand projections failed to meet the legal requirements, but the court said there was reasonable evidence to support the PUC's decision. Pipeline opponents said they are considering an appeal to the Minnesota Supreme Court, but that their main focus is trying to persuade President Joe Biden to intervene and continuing the protests. The Biden administration has not taken a clear position on Line 3, but a legal challenge is pending in federal court on the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers' approval of a wetlands permit that activists say should be withdrawn. Estimates range of at least 1,000 and as many as 3,000 activists from across the country gathered at construction sites near the headwaters of the Mississippi River last week. They urged Biden to cancel the project, as he did the Keystone XL pipeline on his first day in office. Nearly 250 people were arrested, in addition to more than 250 arrests since construction began in December. A smaller group marched Thursday, June 10th, to the Minneapolis office of Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar. The Line 3 replacement would carry Canadian tar sands oil and regular crude from Alberta to Enbridge's terminal in Superior, Wisconsin. The project is nearly done, except for the Minnesota leg, which is about 60% complete. We will follow this ongoing story on Forthright Radio. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.